welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. This program is the second iteration in a series of virtual webinars which we've entitled Coronavirus, What It Means for U.S.-China Economic and Trade Relations, in which we invite four members of our Track 2 Economic Dialogues, two from China and two from the United States, to elaborate on different aspects of how the current pandemic is impacting the bilateral economic relationship. Now on to our four fabulous panelists. In the interests of time, I will only briefly introduce our speakers, but I encourage you to read their full bios located on the event page of our website. If you're, interesting, if you're interested in learning more about their really impressive backgrounds. Xu Gao is chief economist of Bank of China International, leading the Research Institute and the Sales and Trading Department of that institution. Tu Xing Tran is Dean and Professor of the China Institute for WTO Studies at the University of International Business and Economics. Barry Norton is Professor at the University of California, San Diego, and one of America's outstanding analysts of Chinese economic policy. Last but certainly not least is Dan Rosen, who is a founding partner of the Rodian Group and also one of America's leading experts on China's economy. On Monday, he, along with the National Committee, released a report on U.S.-China investment trends, which is also available on our website. Dan, I should note, is a National Committee board member. Um, so let me turn it over first to Dan to make some remarks. Thank you, Steve, and um, hi to everyone um, listening in today. It's great to be back together with our colleagues um, in China, in Beijing, um, and good evening to them. Um, this track two uh, plays an important role uh, at a people-to-people -people level in U.S.-China economic relations. It's been going on for a long time. And it's times like this, the um, mess that we're in right now, where these things can have some of their greatest value. I'm going to offer three quick thoughts um, to share my view on important aspects that shape the U.S.-China um, trade uh, dynamics and outlook right now in the midst of the virus. Um, first, a, a, a comment on surface politics. They're superficial, but they've never been this toxic in my 28 year career, and I don't think anybody else, um, my seniors and mentors, um, can remember a time when things were more toxic than they are, um, either even arguably um, during the Tiananmen um, debacle in uh, 1989. I don't think there was quite as broad a sense of things going off in the wrong direction um, as we feel across the board right now. It's really quite serious on the surface in terms of political incentives. Uh, I'm not least on the American side, um, to point to China as uh, something to blame um, for the situation we find ourselves in. Second point I want to make, the short-term fundamentals below the surface, um, less superficial than the politics, are also not great. Um, all 
indications I can look at right now in terms of the short-term economic outlook suggest that there is not the capacity at present for China and the United States to fulfill the ambitions laid out in the so-called phase one agreement signed on January 15th. That's as close as we've come in recent years, having some sort of strategic uh, resolution to expectations for the, the outlook for the, for the bilateral relationship. Um, and yet given demand conditions in China and the United States, supply conditions in the United States, um, even, for example, with China short on pork right now because of African swine flu, American meat packers are not really in a position because of the virus to be a part of the export boom to meet China's needs, um, for instance. So there's both very micro problems that make it difficult to fulfill the um, export ambition uh, growing from 2017 levels, U.S. exports to China by $70 billion more at the margins here, which is what the deal implied, just not physically possible right now. Adding to the micro reasons for that, the microeconomic headwinds, at the most macroeconomic level, what we have presently is that the United States is at the large end of global um, efforts to stimulate through monetary and fiscal support, um, federal uh, action to stimulate economic activity, where China somewhat surprisingly, given their ability to stimulate last time we had a crisis a decade ago, China is sort of at the fairly thin end um, of leading economies in terms of its stimulus thus far. I would say there, the, 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 the evidence suggests they won't be able to stimulate nearly as much this time as they did last time around. That will tend, to uh, reduce China's ability to be a, a big net importer at a time like this relative to um, uh, what expectations were. Third point I wanna make beyond those short-term fundamentals of these cyclical problems that we have right now, and most important to us as economists, and we come to this dialogue as, uh, as students of economics, are the structural drivers that shape the potential for US and China to find a way forward, constructive way forward in terms of their economic interests. Uh, the structural drivers, or in my opinion, the lack thereof right now, which is to say that my point of view is that China has not been able to implement its uh, ambitions for reform and opening in the past five or eight years um, because of the challenges to domestic stability in China from trying to do the next set of necessary reforms. There are a few green shoots right now. We've heard a few uh, signals that sound kind of promising um, out of the state council and the Chinese leadership over the past few months. For example, implementing a new market allocation set of regimes for basic factors of production. But let's face it, an emergency, an economic emergency like the one we're in is never the right time to try to do the hard work of reform. The hard work of reform needs to be done during the good days so that when the bad times come around and governments are not in a position to take bold reform steps, we already have a good foundation of compatibility uh, in our systems. And um, even if really bold things are put on the table at the National People's Congress that starts to sit next week, I think it'll be years before we'll have verifiable um, results of that 
that will help us to change thinking and policy planning um, in Washington. Meanwhile, on the U.S. side um, right now, uh, the general mood is definitely not in, uh, um, optimistic about reform in China. It's so pessimistic, in fact, that the Trump administration is basically reform agenda and try to do managed trade arrangements to deal with its um, uh, its objectives with China, which is what the phase one um, deal was. That leaves us uh, with uh, essentially divergent paths on a structural level between our two economies. And I dare say some of others in the OECD world um, share that concern that the long-term direction that China's system is presently taking is not convergent with or compatible with market liberal norms as we once hoped China was finding its way toward uh, in the long run. Uh, and that is the fundamental problem that we grapple with uh, in our times here, I would say. Thank you, and I look forward to the conversation with my colleagues. Barry, just go directly to you. Hi, yeah, let me come in. Uh, hello, everybody. It's great to see some, some old friends, and hello to uh, our fellow economists in Beijing and listeners in Beijing. Um, uh, first, sort of underline what he said about politics and then make three sort of separate but related points. It is absolutely true. I mean, the, the political environment, uh, probably in both countries, right, is, is more negative than it's ever been. I think in, in certainly in the United States and disappointment with China. And I think probably people in China feel anger and disappointment with the United States too. So it's a really uh, a toxic brew. And in terms of what we're talking about today, I think we need to recognize that the election is coming up in the United States. Uh, it's quite clear that the Republican Party is gonna run against China and against Democrats for being soft on China. The Democrats are gonna try and hit back and say they're not soft on China and that the Republicans are. Uh, and so that produces this tremendously unpredictable element. So as we try and you know, think about what the, uh, how the economic relationship is, is going to evolve, we should keep in mind that on any given morning, President Donald Trump could wake up and, and disrupt, but could also strengthen uh, the relationship. It's just extremely unpredictable, and we need to be aware of that. So three points. First of all, yeah, there is a trade deal on the table, and I, I certainly agree with Dan. Probably in, in concrete terms, it's, it's not uh, achievable, but um, the big question in my mind is, will China make a significant effort to step up the purchases it makes from the United States. Uh, we were surprised last week, uh, Liu He and, uh, and Lighthizer spoke on the telephone and, and Liu He said, no, no, we intend to, to fulfill this. Uh, very interesting. It, if true, it might have an impact. So far, we haven't really seen much action there at all. And this is really a case where you know, it's not going to be enough for the Chinese government to just say it's okay to buy American soybeans again. This is a managed purchase arrangement, as Dan said. And so it's, it's really going to take a, uh, a significant effort, clear and coordinated action on the part of the Chinese government. Uh, and is that going to happen? We don't know. I think the 
probably the consensus here in the United States is that it's probably not going to happen. So this is an opportunity for China to affect people's perception by some kind of significant and decisive action, if, if, if it were to happen. I think it's fair to say the ball's in China's court. It's up to them to decide whether they want to act in that way. Now, if we think about whether or not they, the Chinese government can act, I mean, we have to recognize there's still an enormous amount of economic insecurity. I mean, China's way ahead of the United States in terms of recovering from the virus. It's way ahead of the United States in terms of going through the, the worst of the economic uh, crisis and now recovering somewhat. But it's by no means back to normal. And I think there's two areas in particular uh, that we're concerned about. One is the small scale sector, the service economy, and the rural to urban migrant fueled economy, which is still well below its potential, still well below full recovery. And it's gonna stay suppressed as long as people are afraid of close contact, which they naturally still are. I mean, this is of course a, con a problem for both our economies, even as lockdowns are eased, still people are afraid and they uh, stay away from a lot of uh, types of activity. So in China, you know, person-to-person -person services are still suppressed. A lot of migrants are still back in their home villages. There's still a lot that needs to be done there. And of course, global trade, uh, if we assume that all of the advanced country markets are going to have a suppressed demand for probably six months, maybe the entire year, who knows? It depends on the on the course of the disease, that means that sector of China's economy is also gonna recover slowly. So China still faces a lot of economic drag. Um, and that means something politically as well, because obviously every government, including the Chinese government, including the US government, is gonna to have to um, look to their own domestic constituencies first. For China, that includes farmers. Uh, China has to support farm income, you've got 200 million migrants who normally would be in the cities, most of whom are still back in the village. So politically, is China gonna be able to make massive purchases from the United States at the cost of, to a certain extent, of domestic interest groups? It's hard to see that. Uh, it could happen. Uh, but it's something where I think everybody's taking a kind of skeptical wait and see attitude. And as Dan said very clearly, we know, you know, people who follow China know that there's a set of reforms, new reforms going on, but to be honest, we don't understand them. We don't concrete manifestations are. So we, you know, we, our view of China is very much driven by what the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is saying in their public uh, meetings, and that's not good, and we don't, we don't uh, really like hearing it. So the, um, that the, the relationship, of course, the, even the economic relationship is multidimensional. And what we're seeing now in the United States, you know, the the combination of the security and the health related can are really leading to this. Uh, Barry, you're, you're, you're breaking up and not coming through. Oh, looks like we lost him, Steve. 
Ah, so technology. So, because we lost perfect at home. Are you back, Barry? Okay, uh, so continue on then. And if we lose you again, I'm going to go to Shugal. Perfect. Uh, I'm almost done anyway. Let me just wrap up by saying we should expect some kind of legislative initiatives that will require uh, both IT supply chains and health related IT, uh, health related supply chains to maintain more resilience and more domestic production. So that's also going to push against the U.S.-China relationship. So there are a lot of headwinds. It's hard to be optimistic, uh, and we need to uh, keep talking about what the next steps will be. Great. The, the part we heard was terrific. Um, let's go to Xu Gao now before we go to questions. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's my pleasure to be in this uh, very interesting panel, and I will talk about the implementation of the phase one trade deal. And uh, I'm going to show you some, I will use, use uh, my, a PowerPoint to show you some charts. That uh, the most important part, important part of the phase one trade deal is the uh, increase of China's imports from the United States uh, by 200 billion US dollars in, in this year and last and next year on top of the uh, 2017 baseline, and uh, most of parts, most of the increase is in the trade of goods, and uh, you can see that the the increase. So the, the trade, uh, the China's imports of the goods from the United States is supposed to increase by about six, uh, six, 64 billion in this year, and uh, to and to use that number, and we can estimate that China should have a very I know, I know you, can, you can't see the numbers very clearly on the screen, and so I will just tell you the story. And so in order to fulfill the phase one trade deal, China has to uh, increase, uh, uh, to accelerate its, its uh, import growth from the United States uh, dramatically. So the import of the goods from uh, from the United States is supposed to be about 80% in this year, in 2020. And uh, the growth rate in last year was negative 20, 21%. So you can see that the, the, in, the growth rate is supposed to increase by 100 uh, percent points. And uh, in energy, the energy is supposed to, uh, import of growth of energy is supposed to be 525% in this year. And then we in the we already have the data in the first quarter of this year, and we can see that uh, the import import of the goods from the United States uh, grow by negative three point four percent. So that means in order to fulfill the uh, goal in this uh, the the import goal in this year, the growth rate of needed in the coming three quarters in the Q two Q three and Q four of this year. Of the of China's imports of, of goods from the United States is supposed to be 100 percent points, 100 percent, 100 actually 104 percent, and uh, the import of the manufactured goods is supposed to be seven percent, which which uh, in the, in the coming three quarters, and which was negative 14 percent in in the in the first quarter, so that means. No, that this in here this chart you shows the growth rate that the uh, needed for for China's sorry, that China's imports of the manufactured goods from the United States is uh, was supposed to be is supposed to be 
uh, about 70%. And uh, that is a high growth rate that we have never seen in the, in the last decades. So in order to fulfill that goal, uh, to have the uh, over, uh, about 70%, 70% growth rate, I think the main problem is that does the U.S. has enough capacity to deliver, to deliver that kind, that amount of manufacturing goods? Because we all know that the, uh, according to the COVID-19 crisis, uh, there's a massive lockdown in the uh, lockdown of the factories in the United States. So that 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 growth rate, uh, that is, I think, it is problematic. And. Uh, same pattern, the same pattern can be also seen in the in the energy imports. So energy growth, energy imports is is supposed to be at more than five hundred percent in the coming quarters, and which is problematic because we know we know that the energy price is depressed in in recent months, and or agriculture imports, the growth rate needed is about 200%, which is ambitious, but I think it is achievable. So the overall, overall growth imports from the United States are needed for the coming is about 100, 100%. And I think that is very unlikely to be achieved in, in this year. So the base, so the main message I want to deliver is that given the COVID-19 crisis, the target set in the phase one trade deal is, I think it's very hard, if not entirely impossible, it's very hard to be achieved. And uh, you can see that uh, that is mainly as a result of the shock that uh, re released by the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And uh, in, in this chart, you can see that the PMI of China has the first quarter and now has recovered uh, somewhat. But uh, the PMI in the US, EU and Japan and the PMI of the emerging markets has come down significantly and uh, uh, come to a very all time low. And um, against that backdrop that uh, China has uh, used its expansionary policy to boost up its domestic demand. As you can see here that the Chinese total social financing has increased to a very high growth rate in recent months. And uh, as a result of that, you can, the dark line represents, represents the estimated China's domestic order index. So China's domestic order has jumped to a, to a very high level. But in the meantime, the new export order of China has come down significantly according, uh, as a result of the, uh, the, the, the back global, uh, the banned global economy. So the main conclusion I want to say that is after the outbreak of the COVID-19 crisis, the import targets for 2020 set in the phase one trade agreement, well, it's very it's it's unlikely, if not impossible to be achieved at the, because time has lost due to the lockdown in Q1 in China and uh, time has all will be lost due to the lockdown in United States in Q2, maybe in Q3. And the China's imports from the United States, especially in the, in the manufactured goods, are facing capacity constraint in the United States. And uh, in the meantime, China has, has successfully stimulated its domestic demand, while, which can help the world economy to recover. And the impacts of COVID-19 should be taken into consideration 
when the progress of the phase one trade agreement is assessed. So I think that some kind, some kind of flexibility in the res, in the assessment of the progress of the, of the phase one trade deal, I think is needed uh, because of the COVID nineteen. So that's that's the that's a point I want. That's a point I want to make, and I will stop here. And uh, looking forward to to more discussion later. Terrific presentation raises a lot of interesting questions, uh, Professor Tu. The, let's see, I don't. So we're, while we're waiting him to for him to reconnect, um, let's go to some questions. Um, Tu Gao, you, you're basically saying asking does the does the U.S. have capacity? So I guess my question for Dan and Barry is, is do we? If China had the market, and then a kind of a subsidiary question for Barry is, you know, you were saying their, their cost to China's uh, domestic suppliers in living up to this, this trade agreement, um, isn't it predominantly, isn't the cost predominantly paid by other foreign countries? So both of those questions for uh, Barry and Dan. Um, uh, is the, so the so the question is whether the main constraint on getting anywhere close to the phase one deal targets is on the U.S. supply side, or is it on China's demand side, or a third possibility is it mostly about diverting. China's imports that were coming from other countries to the United States. Um, at least some of this deal, even before COVID, was going to rely on diverting uh, imports China was previously taking from Australia and Indonesia in natural gas and uh, fossil fuels, um, and for coal as well, uh, to American vendors. Um, displacing um, other import activity, um, I think that was that was inevitably going to be a big part of it. The agriculture expectations were built from a sort of business as usual 2017 vintage expectation about China's need for animal feed, which was profoundly disrupted uh, not by America's ability to supply because most of that soybean is not labor intensive. It's it's. Big, there are big piles of soybeans waiting at ports that could be shipped most of the time. So that's not so much disrupted by the virus. Um, and then, of course, the other giant factor affecting the outlook uh, is Boeing um, and their ability to uh, continue shipping aircraft um, in light of the 737 MAX um, problems that have befallen us. So um, I, I think most of the factors that are disrupting the expectation that the, uh, that the trade uh, objectives are met um, aren't really virus driven, are made somewhat worse by the virus, um, but, they, uh, but they're not really dependent on the virus, um, uh, in my opinion. And then if Barry uh, heard other questions, Steve, uh, Steve, that you put to him, uh, I'd be really curious to hear what he has to say about uh, about them. Uh, now we've got Sorry. <laughs> we've got Professor Tu back. So you want to give your yes. your your presentation? Okay, okay, okay. Uh, thank you for inviting me, and I'm so glad to see all these uh, uh, friends. 
I think uh, I'm sorry with uh, <laughs> the problem with my my uh, network. I think we really need a 5G of Huawei. Um, I would like to share uh, some thoughts of uh, on the prospect of U.S.-China trade relations. Uh, this relationship has been in tension since Trump office in the 17. The basic logic of Trump's decoupling with China is that the U.S. has too much dependence on China, hurting U.S. industries and national security. Uh, we hoped, we once hoped that the pandemic could create some opportunities for the two sides to show some goodwill to each other and initiate some collaborations as the world is fighting with such a great public health crisis. But it has turned out that uh, when China was hit, the U.S. government was looking on differently or even gladly. Uh, and then when the U.S. was caught, uh, the Trump administration was busy with passing the part to China. So we have not seen any uh, leadership uh, by the U.S. or cooperation between the two countries, uh, governments, in the fight with the pandemic. Uh, in fact, I, I would say that the pandemic has given Mr. Trump even more arguments that over-dependence on China or any other countries would hurt the U.S. So, so I don't see any possibility that uh, the Trump administration will relieve its protectionist trade policy against China because of the pandemic, if not the reinforce. Uh, on, the, on, on the China side, I, also, I don't see also, I don't see any uh, willingness to uh, reinforce trade cooperation with the U.S. either. Uh, although the Chinese government are working hard to as I know, uh, to implement those, uh, especially institutional commitments under the phase one deal. Uh, it is simply, uh, as uh, uh, former panelists uh, said, it is simply impossible I think, to fully uh, implement uh, those purchase uh, commitments. Uh, more importantly, as Barry said, the both sides uh, by each other, I think. Uh, actually, uh, maybe on the China side, um, I noticed that uh, China national TV has assailed Mr. Portel for, for continuous days. It is really extraordinary. Uh, right now, I, I would say that the image of the U.S. India might be at lowest point uh, since 1979. So there is no expectation on the Trump administration to to China. So I'm, I'm uh, uh, very pessimistic about the prospect of under the uh, Trump administration. Uh, the only hope maybe is he leave office next He is right that I uh, really hope that uh, <laughs> he will lose the election of my person. But uh, we don't have the capability to make this happen. So our hope is on or dependent on American I don't expect another new president will be nice or soft in China. Just look forward to some rationality, pragmatism. Professor, you're breaking up a lot. I assume that's true for, for everybody. We're not, he we're not hearing you. So let, let me interrupt. Yeah, you, you're frozen. The, what's so interesting is in, the, in these track two dialogues, we always have to spend a lot of time working towards what we call a consensus, where the, the U.S. side and the Chinese side agree. I think in this panel, it's quite clear we do have a consensus, which is that um, implementation of the 
uh, phase one deal is not going to uh, occur on time. I think it's, it's, you know, each speaker kind of focused on that. So I guess my question for the panel is, okay, what should both governments do? What should, you know, what do we tell our governments that given we made a big deal of reaching this phase two, or this phase one agreement, what do we do given the fact that we are not going to be able to implement it with both, I think the reasons fair, fair to say are both. It's, it's, it's uh, US capacity and, and uh, China market. Xu Gao, what do you suggest we tell the, the, our government? And Dan, what do you suggest? Because I don't see Professor Tu or Barry. Oh, well, now I see them both. But uh, Xu Gao, what do you think? And then Dan. <laughs> Steve, I think that the first one trade deal is negotiated before the COVID-19 crisis and is signed before the crisis. And so it is clearly that uh, when we set the, the target, when the two parties set the targets, they didn't take into account of the, the impacts of the crisis. I think that when we assess the implementation of the phase one trade deal, we should take into account of the impact time to implement the, the increase of the imports needed uh, required in the in the trade deal, so that the, the low import growth in the first quarter and maybe in the second quarter of this year of the China from United from United States, I think I should shouldn't taken should be regarded as a kind of a default of the default of the trade and uh, and I think that that's the message we should send to the to the U.S. government and also send to the Chinese government and. Uh, as I, as, a, as I show you in, in my chart, that the Chinese government has already used the expansionary monetary policy to boost domestic demand. And uh, according to the, to the data, then the, the domestic demand, demand in China has, also, has already jumped up. And so that means that China has already used its, its policy ambitions to, to boost the economy and to increase its imports from the rest of the world as well as from the United States. So I said we, should, we just need more time, given the outbreak of the COVID-19, to fulfill the phase one trade deal. Yeah. Dan, what do you suggest? Oh, so the problem with that logic is that the main role of the phase one deal was not to repair long-term U.S.-China economic relations, but rather to get Donald J. Trump reelected. Uh, it didn't fundamentally address um, our long-term interests, to be honest, right? And the timing of it, delivering some big good news for U.S. exporters prior to November 2020 was essential to its nature. Uh, and so while economically it's completely uh, correct to say there needs to be more time for that deal to generate any kind of results that could be called uh, a success within the framework that the deal was you know was promising it's utterly unrealistic to expect half of americans who are not supportive of the president um to uh to go with that logic and say okay yeah it's it's still potentially the way forward it just needs more time. Um, well, which is to say that 
Dr. Chu is absolutely correct. He's got the exact right economic analysis of um, what, what the reality, what the fundamentals are. We all do agree about that. But then coming up with something constructive to say that will help de-escalate the tension, I think the only thing I have been able to identify that would do that would be a surprising Chinese endorsement of liberal economic reform uh, urgency on its own side um, that would change the international global conversation. Because remember, these concerns about where we're going are not just happening in Washington, they're also happening in many other uh, market economy capitals um, as well. So that is the wild card that could get us out of the, uh, but uh, again, as I said, I think in the middle of uh, this uh, economic emergency, generally you would say the political economy <laughs> does not make it likely that that's the moment that China could really make a bold uh, reform step forward. I hope I'm wrong about that. Actually, uh, we all know that uh, the phase one deal has uh, mainly two parts. Uh, one part is on uh, these institutional uh, issues, uh, another part is on the purchase commitments. So as uh, Mr. Xu said, uh, and I also agree that uh, it is um, it's impossible for China to fulfill these uh, purchase commitments right now. So maybe we need more time, but uh, I don't say that's the main point. So I agree with uh, Dan that uh, we should maybe focus on these institutional commitments, uh, which uh, are more fundamental and the structural. Uh, but I not so <laughs> agree with uh, Dan that, uh, uh, actually I think a crisis could create some urgency for institutional reforms. Actually, China's WTO accession in 2001 China was experiencing some economic difficulties. Uh, economic growth rates were actually uh, declining before 2001. Uh, then it, it, this kind of economic difficulties created some urgency for the Chinese government to push forward harder reforms. Kind of incentive also uh, a kind of persuasive argument uh, to push forward harder reforms. So, um, I, and actually, I, I think, uh, uh, as also as Dan said, uh, uh, the outside world was not satisfied with the speed of China's uh, uh, reform in recent years. But uh, you see, after a couple of years, uh, China's economic growth has been slowing down, as we all know. Uh, but uh, now, uh, at least in the last uh, two or uh, three years, uh, the speed has been up, has been increasing actually. Uh, in, so at least it's faster than the early years, uh, like in 2013 or 2014. So uh, as I said, I, I think uh, uh, this economic crisis or difficulties maybe produce some uh, 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 pushing uh, 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 force uh, to the Chinese government. Before going on to Barry, Professor Tu, give us some very concrete examples of rapidly in the last two or three years that you just said. Um, I think one area is uh, is the financial sector. 
just to show you that understand this issue. Uh, actually, um, uh, as we know, China made some commitments in the financial sector openness, but it is true that uh, uh, the open uh, opening uh, process uh, was slow. Uh, it is true that uh, it was slow. Uh, but uh, you can see uh, in the last two years, uh, they have been very uh, ambitious uh, efforts to push forward uh, the openness of this sector. Actually, in many uh, experts were are concerned about the speed. <laughs> they thought that it is uh, maybe too fast. Uh, but uh, I think the Chinese government are, uh, is, uh, is uh, determined to do that. Another area, uh, I think, is uh, on, on foreign investments. Uh, although the new foreign investment law is not uh, maybe satisfying everybody, but uh, uh, we should admit that it is a great uh, step forward. Um, and also, uh, actually, China has been good uh, bilateral in with the EU and, and the United States. Uh, these negotiations are also uh, creating some urgencies and uh, incentives for the Chinese government to uh, push forward these uh, reforms that open up. So, uh, also uh, another issue, I think, Ben uh, and also many other American experts have been uh, talked about many times, which is the subsidy. Um, actually, as I know, uh, many. Chinese uh, government uh, uh, bodies are working hard and uh, seriously on this issue, uh, uh, systems and uh, uh, make them more transparent and uh, uh, compatible with the international uh, rules. Uh, so maybe uh, the reforms are not committees uh, serious considering to push uh, forward some harder reforms. Barry, you want to comment on this question also? Yeah, we got to put San Diego on the on the grid. Let's try this. Can you can you hear me now? Yes, we can. I'm I'm also phoning in on an iPhone. Can your people patch me in? They should see uh, iPhone input. But we can hear you fine. So ju just. Oh, you can hear me. Okay, good. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so with great respect for everything that's been said, everything I agree with, but I think we also need to completely distinguish between two different circumstances. One is that the Chinese government makes some very large and aggressive purchases, and the other where it doesn't. It may indeed be that China makes some large purchases and the U.S. faces some short-term supply constraints, especially in pork, especially in airplanes. <clears throat> that would be too bad. But look, when we get six months from now, if there are large unfilled orders from China, then it's going to be relatively easy to reassess the phase one trade deal. If there are not large unfulfilled orders, it's going to be a, a completely a dead letter. Now, obviously, that involves some risks on the Chinese side, economic and political. So it's not an easy decision to make. But but I really think, um, yes, it's not realistic to assume the trade deal is going to be implemented as it is. But there are very different potential situations downstream if we think of di two different types of behavior on the part of the Chinese. Uh, 
that's a great point. Yes, it's it's a great point. It's uh, taking an economic risk in in exchange for political benefit. So, uh, talk about the onshoring that's likely to occur post COVID and how that'll affect both U.S. China relations and the um, you know the bilateral trade deficit. You know we see we saw legislation proposed yesterday where um, uh, they're going to give tax incentives to produce rare earth materials in the United States, where you know a lot of incentives given to kind of bring that home. We're obviously going to see incentives given to PPE producers to produce in the United States and be able to create a stockpile. How is that going to affect the the economic relationship? Who wants to take that one? Well, if, if let me while my technology is working, let me uh, let me take a crack at that. I mean, when you start adding up these incremental measures, the incremental measures will certainly occur, right? Just exactly as Steve laid out, that there'll be a series of, of ad hoc measures and maybe some tax code changes. Of course, Japan has actually a fund to support reshoring by some of the Japanese companies. It wouldn't surprise me if that happened in the United States as well. So obviously that has some economic impact, plus it's a very unfriendly gesture to, to China. Uh, still, the ultimate decision makers are companies, and China is still a really big market, and Chinese logistics are really very, very efficient and low cost. So, you know, if we look at it purely in economic terms, what I would expect to see would be a reversal of the trend towards offshoring, but not by any means the massive reshoring of American investment and production chains in China. I mean, in part, one important thing, of course, is that a lot of U.S. production chains in China are actually run by intermediary companies from Taiwan or Hong Kong or Korea and are not directly subject to American policy. So I think that we could see a moderate reshoring trend, but if it triggers an even greater deterioration in relations, then, uh, then it could spin out of control and be something much bigger, which would also be much more of a shock to the global economy. Xu uh, Gao or, or Professor Tu, anything you want to add on that? Well, I think that um, it, is, it is true that the United States wants, wants the their factories come back to to the United States, but I think it's very unlikely in the in the next one or two years because that after the outbreak of the COVID nineteen, now the global world has fallen into kind of insufficient demand, and in, so there's there's overcapacity globally. So you can see that from the the deflation pressures felt by all 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 the countries. And uh, so, if you want to rebuild factories in the United States, that means you have to you have to invest. You have to invest a lot. You have to build new new capacities in the United States. But the, that is economically economically, it's not it's not a uh, something that the factories or in enterprises want to do in a world that is, that is there is, with insufficient demand and overcapacity. So I think that after COVID-19, COVID-19, although the United States can use this 
policies to to give more incentives for the factory to move back to the United States. But I don't I don't think that will be that will be that will be will take place at very massive scale. Um, but I think that that kind of policy do send uh, kind of policy do send out signals that the United States want to want to break up with 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 China, and that is. I think that is that is harmful to the to the bilateral uh, relation between U.S. and China. But but I think that the U.S. China has come together and has has linked for over three decades, for over 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 uh, for about two decades after the uh, after the, uh, the after China entered WTO and uh, the economic link between these two countries has become too intensive. Uh, too massive, and I think it is impossible to cut these two two countries apart. So I think that uh, politi- uh, politicians they they have they may have their goals, but uh, in the long term, I think the economic forces always triumph. So I think that uh, uh, despite all these uh, headwinds, uh, especially from the political side, I think China and the United States will continue to 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 be linked and uh, uh, I, I think that that will be the the, the, the long run trend professor two anything you wanted to add yes uh, I agree with uh, Barry that uh, uh, for companies uh, it is reasonable to reconsider the balance or the trade off between the security and the efficiency of uh, supply chains uh so some uh, under such a, a big uh, pandemic uh, some companies maybe need to reconsider their commercial uh, operations uh but uh, uh since china has been very quick uh in controlling the virus so then in terms of security china is still uh, one of the most uh, uh safest uh, uh, place uh, to uh, uh, arrange their uh, supply chains. So, uh, but another problem is uh, if the government or the U.S. government wants to push forward such kind of reshoring, then that's another issue. Uh, actually, uh, the trade war in the last two years has already uh, created such kind of uh, tendency or policy uh, environment. So some American companies have to, or some not only American, but also other countries' uh, companies have to uh, rearrange their supply chains uh, with regard to China. So, but uh, the problem is uh, if uh, the US government wants to achieve this at a very significant uh, scale, then the US will become a very protective country. The US will give up its uh, liberal trade policy at all. Well, there's certainly, the, the, Professor Chu, there's certainly, as part of the legislation that's proposed, now obviously this is proposed legislation that hasn't passed either the House yeah, or the yeah. Senate, and as Barry pointed out, the Japanese have already done this, it's effectively, the, the, the bill allocates 41 billion U.S. to reshoring. So it's not a question, what the tariffs have done is basically gotten 
U.S. companies to, to basically diversify their sources. So they've moved Vietnam, Indonesia, and other places where they're avoiding the tariffs. This does not do this. This actually requires that the producer brings the production home and benefits from these government subsidies, which is, which is quite serious. Again, it's a proposed bill, but that's the concept, that you're willing as a nation to pay the price to have the supply at home and not be subject to things like uh, COVID-19. Dan, you look like you wanted to say something. Wanted to throw in a couple of thoughts on this meta topic of reshoring uh, or sort of um, uh, resourcing as well, right? To reduce um, perceived vulnerabilities. Number one, ultimately, yes, economic logic is the most important force shaping the structure of economic activity within economies and among them globally. But there's no better proof than China's industrial policies the past decades that if government wants to, it can very fundamentally change the outcomes in terms of which industries um, grow and which um, do not. In general, I'm, I think that's usually not such a good idea. And I, I point to problems in China today and debt that are the evidence of that. But if government wants and government does want, and there are security considerations that have to do with health vulnerability now to invest money in changing the way the economy works for these things like PPE, medical devices, it absolutely can do so. And it will, and not just the US, but Europe and elsewhere around the world also. Secondly, that it's definitely not just an American phenomenon. Other areas, including Japan and the European Union, have really gone further to talk about reshoring or resourcing than Washington has gone so far. Third, that even before COVID, there was a lot of hedging of over-dependence on China where there's growing political risk because of international tensions uh, around the world. Um, I will observe, we just did some research over the past decade there's been more new manufacturing FDI going into ASEAN countries than there is going into China for the first time in four decades. So while there's talk about the new foreign investment law, which Professor Tu mentioned, it's as usual, it's great to talk about it, but it hasn't been implemented enough to make the door open so wide that it has changed the, the pattern here. And the pattern is that people are diversifying away from putting their next plant in China and putting it in ASEAN instead in order to have a little more diversification, a little less concentrated risk. The next phase of decoupling in America will be rationally cleaning up all the crazy ideas about decoupling from the past three years. Uh, in the the, the, the period we just came through was just establishing the idea that, my goodness, we really could decouple. Uh, it would be hugely costly, but in principle, it's not impossible. Actually, there's nothing inevitable about our engagement. Our engagement is contingent on having convergent systems. And if we don't have convergent systems, then the engagement will not happen. In fact, it will reverse. We have now shown that. Well, when I say we, I mean the Trump administration largely. It has been shown to be reality and, and true. That doesn't mean that it's affordable the way it's currently been suggested doing it. In fact, it's not. And stockpiling something like rare earths would be much, much cheaper 
than restarting production in, I think, Mountain View, California is the facility uh, which, uh, which is most likely to take advantage of those, uh, those tax incentives, for example. But it's very wasteful. We're in a resource-constrained uh, world now. And uh, there's going to be a lot of change in American thinking about engagement with China uh, to be more thoughtful and smart uh, rather than the sort of shoot first and ask questions later um, policy that we've had in, in recent years. Maybe a necessary phase, um, but definitely not the right uh, approach to strategic uh, policy making for the long for the long run. Wouldn't the same be true in addition to rare earths of PPE and other things? That the answer isn't necessarily to reshore it, but to create sufficient stockpiles in public and private hospitals throughout the United States that if a crisis happens, we can, we can deal? Yep. I mean, there, there was backup capacity in Rhode Island to produce um, uh, a certain uh, a, you know, a volume of masks. And in a once-in-a-century crisis, there's never going to be adequate stockpiles and supplies because it's just it's very unlikely that people anticipate uh, these shocks the way they they need to, unfortunately, um, which is why international cooperation is a necessary uh, part of the solution here as well. But yes, Steve, I mean, there's a series of questions. Can you stockpile it adequately to meet your needs? And what's the cost of that relative to creating a subsidy or industrial policy or otherwise uh, forcing producers to come back to your own to your own shores. And we need to return to that kind of fact-based uh, national policymaking rather than this sort of belief-based, faith-based, um, emotive-based uh, policymaking. Barry, anything you wanted to add on that or we're good? Uh, no, I, I, I agree with what, what people have been saying. The one thing that, that we can say for sure is that businesses are already adjusting their risk minimization strategy. So now a large business will think that there is an element of risk in operating in China that needs to be diversified against. And so just the question is whether we can find a stable point where the, the, the cooperation can continue on that reduced level. The, can we talk a little bit about capital flows and, and that this recent instruction from President Trump to the Department of Labor, I believe, that then instructed the board of directors of the fed, a, fed, a federal pension fund to stop investing in any Chinese securities. Um, Dan or Barry or, or has anybody kind of looked at that and figured out what this means? Obviously, I think the pension fund would have invested in total. I think it was four billion, so it's not a not a big dollar. Two finger, yeah. Two finger public pension funds, in my experience, feel that investing in Chinese securities would be toxic and they don't do it. I, I, I don't heard. CalPERS does invest in, in funds which have exposures to Chinese securities. Yes, but they don't do it. I mean, it, it, uh, at a nice distance, so they have a certain amount of deniability. But th this is investing, in other words, you invest in MSCI, which, yeah, has, which has now defined Chinese companies as part of MSCI. So when you buy the MSCI index, effectively, what 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 they've stopped now is is the ability to elect to invest in that index, which would have invested in Chinese securities. But Dan, you want to Sorry, comment? I, I wasn't saying stocks. I was saying government bonds and China and development bank bonds. The larger issue, Steve, is driven by the decision of. Um, 
global index companies um, like MSCI, Russell on the uh, bond side, uh, FT, FTSE, and others, both in equity and in debt, to move beyond including offshore Chinese uh, exposure um, to China's growth. Because that's what, if you're an index company, your job is to be apolitical and simply answer the question, where is growth in the global economy that investors could access? Because that's what a stock or a, a, a debt issue reflects, right? The profitability of companies taking risk to serve growth and demand uh, around the world. And if a very large share of marginal global growth is happening in China, then companies servicing that opportunity are gonna see their profits grow and their securities, their debt instruments are gonna be attractive to investors. And so um, there are fiduciary considerations. If you invest directly as companies, can you get your money out <laughs> because of capital controls, which in the past limited these indices to only including uh, recommendation to uh, access Chinese growth when those Chinese firms list offshore and are accessible as American depository receipts in the US or in Hong Kong or Singapore, London, that sort of stuff. The time had come for these index firms to say, because China has uh, improved the convertibility uh, across its financial account, we can now include direct exposure to Chinese stocks and bonds to global investors, professional investors that don't need to be told by a government board whether they should have this or that in their portfolio, frankly. And so these indices said, yes, going forward, there will be a larger weight of these Chinese uh, securities in our, in our standard portfolio that, again, doesn't reflect any political judgment about whether China or Saudi Arabia or anybody else is good or bad. It simply says, where are the, where's the growth, guys? Um, what would you want to have if you wanted to have a perfectly balanced global portfolio of where the growth is? And that's what folks like MSCI did. It's their job. Uh, their customers have all the acumen about political risk inside that they need, as do these government uh, pension uh, boards as well, I would say. But, you know, all of the all bets are off um, if politics get to the point they've gotten now all of this opportunity to be more deeply engaged is contingent on expectation that in the future we will be more like one another rather than less like one another. And that's where these fundamental questions about where China is planning to go uh, in, the, in the future has disrupted um, the economic opportunities that we've been talking about for so long. Professor Tu, Xu Gao, any, any additions to that? I think that I want to make two points, Steve, uh, on that. The first point is that, um, you know, China is not a country short of capital. Actually, China has excessive saving and lend a lot of, lot of its capital to, to other countries, including lend to the United States. So if, you, uh, if the U.S. asks these institutions to not buy your, uh, China stock, and the uh, Chinese government can simply ask uh, their institu institution not buying U.S. government bond, or even selling or sell U.S. bond. So, and so I think that that will be have that kind of so selling U.S. Treasury bond will have much bigger impacts on the United States than the impacts of the uh, U.S. institution not buying China stock. And second point I want to make is, is from the financial uh, financial point. 
perspective that, that given the delinking trend of these two countries, actually the, the correlation of the China stock market, the China financial market and the US financial market has been, has been decreasing. And that, that, so in order to, and that makes China's, China's stock or China's financial assets a, a favorable assets to own, you know, if you want to diversify your portfolio. So if you, so, so, give, so that, that means that the, uh, for these U.S. institutional investors, they, they, they want to put more, the, the more, or more the, the bigger part of the, of, the, of the portfolio of the money on, on the Chinese financial market. And uh, if you ask them not to do that, I think that is, that is not, not, not a good, that is not good, good for them. That's not good for them. And, uh, uh, that's the second point I want to make. Great. Uh, Nick Lardy asks, given what was been said on this call about the lack of likelihood that the phase one agreement will be implemented, what did Ambassador Lighthizer and Vice Premier Lioka talk about that gave them this very positive readouts from both the Chinese and, and American governments? Anybody want to venture a comment on that? I mean, of course, we don't know what uh, what they talked about, and we don't know whether either one of them has buy-in from their boss. Right? It does, is Donald Trump going to support what Lighthizer says? We don't know. Will Xi Jinping support what Liu He says? We don't know. I assume that both of them are trying to keep this alive, and the way to keep it alive is to tell both sides that there's progress, that there's stuff happening. Um, but I would just go back to my original point, which is in order to make this call realistic, China has to follow through with large purchases. And I think that's what Lighthizer is hoping for. Xu Gao or Professor Tu, you wanna say what the Chinese government said about this? Well, I think that, in my view, I think that the Chinese government will, will reassure the U.S. government that the China will try to fulfill the phase one trade deal, and uh, and they just need more time. I think Dan made reference to <laughs> Professor Tu. You want to add? Yeah. Um, uh, as I said, I think uh, the Chinese government will still uh, implement those institutional commitments in the phase one deal. Uh, Actually, in, uh, in early February, uh, some Chinese uh, government agencies were already uh, discussing uh, whether we can uh, implement those uh, purchase commitments because at that time, China was hit uh, uh, significantly by the, by the virus. So, uh, but uh, uh, this, uh, uh, these uh, purchase commitments, uh, if we cannot implement those uh, commitments, uh, then we can use uh, some uh, provisions in the deal uh, to uh, argue that uh, because of some uh, uh, outside uh, uh, factors like uh, the pandemic, then we cannot uh, uh, make this happen. But it is uh, not uh, uh, inconsistent with the deal because it's already in the deal. We should consider those uh, uh, uncontrollable factors. So uh, then in this sense, you can still argue that the deal is in uh, good shape. Yeah, I effectively argue uh, a force majeure event 
that COVID-19 yeah, constituted a force majeure, which means that even though you don't end the implementation, you kind of pause the implementation for some period of time. If there was good feelings and good faith between the bo both governments, that might occur. Yes. But as both Dan and Barry pointed out in their presentations, um, that is not the case. And for the next six months till the elections, it's going to get worse. They correctly point out that you know, the Republican uh, position is going to be deflect attention from the failure to deal properly with COVID-19 to blaming China. And the Democratic position is to inoculate themselves against any charges that they're, that they're soft on China. One uh, slightly positive note, since this, this panel has not been filled with optimism, is the businesses that I talk to the American businesses suggest that the Chinese are really trying to implement where they can. That I spoke with an energy company, and here you've had this massive drop in energy prices, which of course is going to make the absolute dollar value of those energy purchases substantially lower. But they, they are trying to, to kind of get that energy in, and agri companies in the agricultural area, the Chinese are um, to the extent possible, trying to purchase more soybeans and, and other agricultural products at this point. So there is some good faith um, at the operating level. And then at USTR, they say that, uh, again, this is not talking with Ambassador Lighthizer or the deputy, but the, the working level, that they, they say the Chinese are, are trying to implement that and implement the agreement. And in fact, you know, we, we at the committee talk a lot, a lot about channels of communication between the United States and Chinese governments being closed down. What they say at the working level, uh, they are not closed down, that they continue to communicate on uh, very specific implementation uh, of those agreements. Um, having said that, let me get to a, uh, a really toxic question. Uh, <laughs> which is how serious do you think is the Trump administration in getting China to pay either through lawsuits uh, of its own or endorsing people suing the Chinese government or saying China should forgive interest payments on U.S. treasuries, which obviously is, is a, uh, a policy which I think we would all agree would be disastrous for America. But how serious is this, Dan Barry? It's, it's uh, the hard part is uh, separating uh, statements that are meant to be taken seriously from stuff that's just noise, frankly. And there's not good uh, command and control within the Trump administration senior echelon, I would say. There's not good message control. <laughs> Famously, there's not. Um, and so... You know, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of policy entrepreneurship uh, in different departments around Washington where folks are trying to come up with things that they think will resonate with, uh, with the Oval Office um, or support the Republican effort to avoid deflect responsibility for the manner in which things have been handled in the past three or four months. And so there are a few things coming out of uh, the administration that I've seen that we actually think merit very careful uh, uh, attention and reflection that they 
they have some momentum and that there is actually a sort of implementation uh, uh, process behind them. Some of the things to do with financial decoupling, Steve, which we talked about, and one of the reasons why I had so much to say about that issue is that that's not just a flash in the pan sort of idea that's kind of just being trialed out there and is going to just go away. Um, some of these other things, opening the door to lawsuits against the government of the People's Republic of China for its handling of the, the, the virus, I think, are, are um, you know, not to be taken seriously, I think, although in as much as people are still trying to get Beijing to pay for Republican-era Chinese bonds, maybe 70 or 100 years from now, we'll still see some echoes of this sort of thing. But um, but uh, I, I, I don't take those too seriously for the most part. Barry, anything on that now? No, I, I agree. This is a provocateur, you know, it's a, it's a, just an effort to get people riled up and get your base motivated. Um, one of our directors, Bob Peterzak, asks, has the COVID-19 crisis led to a further centralization of economic control in China or an impetus towards reform? So for Xu Gao and Professor Tu. Well, I think that um, uh, in order to recover from the uh, COVID-19 crisis uh, swiftly, I think that Chinese government definitely need to need to do more, need to use this expansionary monetary and fiscal policy to stimulate economy. And uh, that will naturally lead to more influence of the government on the economy. And I think that is also the, uh, also the trend in other countries, also in, in you know, United States. But I think that the China is also always on, the, on, the, on, on, its, tra on, its, on its track to, to push, or push forward the market-oriented reform mainly in, in recent years, mainly in the financial sector. For example, we are opening, opening up our financial market to foreign investors and things like that. I think that um, so the COVID-19 uh, crisis is just the short run uh, turbulence uh, distortions and uh, uh, that won't change the long run trend of the China, especially the China's reform agenda. Professor Tu. Uh, when we fight, uh, fought with the pandemic, of course, the Chinese government was mobilizing uh, the resources uh, around the country. Uh, so, it, in some, especially in the medical uh, uh, industries. Uh, but uh, uh, to recover the economy or to promote, uh, promote the economic development, I think uh, the Chinese government still needs further uh, marketization Actually, uh, you may notice uh, in, in April, uh, the Chinese government re released a new document on uh, so-called uh, the marketization of uh, factor markets. Uh, it was, as I said, it was released in April. Uh, so uh, at least I haven't seen any uh, uh, clear tendency toward uh, uh, more centralization economic policy. What about phase two, folks? What, are, are we ever going to see the beginning of uh, phase two negotiation, which was supposed to occur soon after the January 15th signing of the phase one? So both somebody from the U.S. side and somebody from the Chinese side to answer that. <laughs> the silence is deafening. Nope. 
I mean, U.S. side, it seems such a distant prospect, it's hard to take it seriously. Uh, Professor Tu? Uh, well, actually, uh, I, I don't think that uh, uh, there will be a phase two deal uh, uh, in this year, at least. Uh, so uh, I think uh, the both sides need more time to uh, implement a phase one deal first. Uh, but uh, as you all know that uh, right now, uh, implementation of phase one deal is facing significant uh, challenges. So I, I just mean, I, I just think that uh, we don't need it to start a phase two negotiation. I think that uh, let's first get the phase one trade deal done. And the second point I want to make is that um, we need the two parties, two countries need to build more foundations before start negotiating phase two, phase two trade agreement. Because that, you know, when China's, when United States always pointing, points its fingers on China and always think that China is, is not doing things right. China is not following the U.S. passes, passes and China is not pushing forward market-oriented reforms. If, if, if you have that, that kind of mindset, I think it's very hard to have a trade, a phase two trade agreement. China will have uh, its own, uh, its own model, and uh, that model may not look like the model U.S. has. But uh, I think that two models can work together to make the, to to to. This is two models, two models. These these are compatible with each other. I think. Uh, from the global perspective, and uh, and in before you know before we we have a, a consensus on, consensus on that, I think it's impossible to have a phase two trade deal. You know, I uh, can I jump in on that? Sure. I mean, because it it relates to the question of centralization as well. I mean, on the one hand, if we look at sort of economic reform, yeah, China seems to be moving towards additional steps toward marketization. But we also see the party control being so much strengthened throughout the economy, and to be honest, worldwide. And so, you know, when you say there are different models, Shugao, to us it looks like the model is absolute political control combined with marketization. And I got to say, I worry very much whether that is compatible between the two systems, because I mean, the basis of, uh, well, the basis of China's WTO membership, among other things, was that state enterprises would be not taking political guidance, that they would be purely commercial entities. And so I think it's that, that's the, the, the problem that we're, I think, most concerned about on some deep level. So, I mean, in a way, I agree with you. It's the, it's the fundamental lack of trust rather than the need to move to a stage two deal that I worry very much about how that lack of trust can be overcome. Well, Barry, I think that uh, I agree with you that uh, there is some kind of uh, consolidation of the power uh, to the government in recent years. But I think, you know, in the, in the past four decades, China always pushed for its reform in a kind of, uh, groping, uh, crossing the river by groping stones model. And uh, so, it, you know, that uh, there is a pros and cons of this consolidation of the, uh, of the power in the country. And uh, 
uh, I think that um, if that if that if the consolidation of the power is not is 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 actually that bad, I think that uh, China will will shift towards another 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 direction in the, in the coming years. I have faith in that. Yeah, yeah. We we just have time for one last question, which is actually a perfect segue into our next panel, which will occur on May 27th at I, I believe at the same time of day. Uh, which will have Bob Rubin, Nick Lardy, Yao Yang, and Lu Feng. And it will actually focus on this question, but, but let's, uh, let's ask uh, the question, um, which is by, from Liz Economy, who's the director of the National Committee and at the Council on Foreign Relations. And she asks, if each panelist had the ability to advance and implement one trade or investment initiative in his own country to improve the relationship at this moment, what would it be? I could go on for an hour, but if I could only have one thing right now, restoring the Industry Advisory Council um, due process in Washington that assures that U.S. Uh, federal policymaking is done in consultation with industry, industry which understands the realities of whether you can disrupt uh, production and supply chains built up over decades, rather than thinking you could just pull the legs out from under these, uh, from under these things. I think I would, uh, I would focus on that. Barry. I guess I'd be virus specific and I'd say, let's have a major initiative to cooperate with China, not, not to cast blame for the origin of the virus, but to, pool resources and do everything we can to work together to control the virus. Xu Gao. Well, I think the China, Chinese government should use more expansion, um, more expansion macro policy to create more demand for foreign companies, especially for U.S. companies. Professor Tu. Uh, I think China should allow some uh, social media of America into the Chinese market, at least to Twitter. So you, you're repeating the call I make in all of my speeches, which are, which are uh, Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Please allow them in. It would do wonders for the U.S.-China economic relationship. I'm glad to hear Chinese friends second that call. But I know it's midnight for, for Xu Gao and, and Professor Tu and and uh, Dan and Barry have to get on with their days, but thank you so much for what has been a fascinating, fascinating program. You have our deepest thanks for, for participating in this, and hopefully we'll get to see you in person, maybe not in 2020, but certainly in 2021. So we'll see you all soon, thanks. See you, thanks. See you, Scott and Professor Tu. Bye-bye. To learn more about the coronavirus and its impacts, visit us at ncuscr.org slash coronavirus or go to youtube.com slash ncuscr.